Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus Morningstar, and this is episode 8 of Story Mode, the podcast for Storyboard Gamer, where I talk about things that are happening within the board game industry, the games themselves, and other topics relevant to the hobby. In this episode, I focus on my time at Origins Games Convention last week. It has taken a little bit of time for me to put this episode together, partly because I was having trouble with the audio, which I recorded in my hotel room over there in Columbus. So there is unfortunately a little bit of inconsistency with the quality of the audio in this podcast. But anyway, let's jump into it. We'll talk about what it was like in Columbus, as well as some of the highlight games of the convention. If you ever attend Origins, one thing to note is that the event takes place at the Greater Convention Center, which is in downtown Columbus. Columbus doesn't have the most robust public transport system, so proximity to the convention center is going to be something worth considering if you ever attend Origins. While of course there are the dedicated hotels that are attached to the convention center, these are necessarily the most expensive option for you. However, there are a number of hotels in the immediate vicinity which will provide you a shuttle service direct to the convention center. For example, Holiday in Columbus downtown has been a place I stayed twice and the shuttle service was an immense help. Just that because the public transport isn't the most amazing, there's this sense that once you leave the convention center, you've left for the day and you don't really have an ease of coming back with the exception of places where there's that shuttle service. Yes, there's that lag, but it's still enough that I felt that I could get go to and fro a little bit. And that was useful for dropping things off and picking things up. It is worth noting that Origins Game Fair happens at the same time as Columbus Pride. And Columbus Pride is one of the biggest in North America. So you need to make sure you planned a little bit ahead. You can't really leave this at the last moment. Fortunately, though, there is a lot of really good Airbnb options in the area, most of them providing even cheaper accommodation. But of course, at that point, you'll need to sort out your transportation to the convention center. While you're staying here in Columbus, one place I can recommend you check out is North Market. It is basically across the main road from the convention center. It's a little sort of farmer's market type area that most people at the convention center discover. And most importantly for Australians like me, uh, Staus Coffee has an amazing barista service. And it's one of the best examples of coffee I was able to come across in Columbus and in fact, uh, most of the US that I was visiting. So how does one describe the Origins Games Fair? First and foremost, The name is meant to signify that it is the start of the convention season, the origins of gaming as it were. It is a convention closely affiliated with Gamma, the Game and Manufacturers Association, who are now headquartered in Columbus. And the Origins Games Fair has a particular vibe to it. And if you recall, I likened UKGE to Origins. The ambience is very light compared to a lot of the other trade fair style conventions. And by that, I mean conventions where there is a large focus on selling games as opposed to merely just playing and showcasing games. Origins used to have a reputation for being the first part of the year to showcase the games that were coming out that year. 
However, more and more are being pushed back to Gen Con releases with maybe demos or ramping up for Kickstarter happening at Origins. So now, Origins is exhibiting this twilight zone where it is somewhat of a retail event and somewhat of a gaming event. But as more and more things push to Gen Con, there's less things for reviewers such as myself to engage with apart from just covering content. That being said, Origins is one of my favorite conventions, if partly because it coincides with Columbus Pride, and that's just kind of cool for me. The easygoing attitude of the convention means I have a better chance at arranging points of contact or meetings or or just touching base with the publishers and other people in the industry. Other conventions such as Gen Con or Essen, there is such a frenetic pace that if you are not organized well in advance, you cannot get a foot in the door. Time is tight. And so I say this as a point of advice. If you are looking to become a new re- reviewer or looking to sort of introduce yourself to the industry as a whole, Origins is a really good one. You can actually wander around on that first day and speak to people saying, look, do you actually have an appointment free to speak to me about this at X time? And they'll usually have some free slots. If not, well, at least you won't get everything, but you'll hit a few points. And because the pace is a little bit less frenetic, the staff and the volunteers are usually in a much better mood. Now, that being said, I, as an attendee and someone who's traveled a long way to be there, I very much value the fact that it is four days of convention as opposed to some of the shorter ones. The same cannot be said for the people working the convention because it is full on that period of time and you can understand the amount of pressure that they're experiencing as a result. And the only other thing that I will mention is like other big conventions, Origins has a day zero. That is, the formal parts of the convention are from Thursday to Sunday, but on the Wednesday, there's a whole lot of unofficial stuff happening, especially for press, uh, especially for publishers. And being there on day zero is a really good low-key way to maybe touch points with people. And as a word of advice though, a lot of the publishers will be in the exhibition hall setting up. So it might be a little bit piecemeal who you can actually make a point of contact with. One of the questions that I tend to see recurring every now and then, and especially in the reviewer circuit, is what sort of things a new reviewer should do in terms of establishing those connections and relationships with publishers. Generally, one of the biggest benefits that most reviewers see in terms of acting as a reviewer is gaining access to free copies of games. This relationship is not as straightforward and as simple as it might seem on the surface. There are quite a lot of reviewers these days. And almost certainly, if you are new to the hobby or new to the practice of reviewing, you're relatively unknown. Maybe you have done something prior that has brought notoriety to you, but generally assume that if you have not attended a convention before, or you do not have much of a profile, you are going to be treated as persona non grata. Fortunately, conventions are one of the best ways to convert yourself from persona non grata into someone who is known. My main recommendation, because you won't have a press pass at this point, is that on day zero or day one, 
you go around to the convention and see if you can organize meetings with them, book meetings. Time is a precious commodity for publishers. All you need to do is go up to them and say, I'm a new member of press and I'm hoping to organize a meeting with you. I was not able to get a press pass this time around because I'm new. Maybe you did, in which case, you know, this is a little bit redundant. But you are wanting to establish a sense of professionalism with these publishers. What you shouldn't be doing is immediately asking for games. What I recommend is actually just demonstrate a general interest in those games, ask questions, engage, sit down, do a demo. Publishers are wanting to get a sense that you are serious about engaging with the substance of a game. And if you have no established reputation behind you, they need to observe you to get a sense of what you're about. Maybe research the games beforehand, figure out maybe four or five games that you want to target and that you can focus on reviewing. Because if you have a focused approach rather than a broad scattershot approach, I think you'll get a better output and engagement. By all means, if you can go up to a publisher and and actually respond to them about the game rather than just simply be passive, I'm very well aware of this game. I was fascinated by it because it's done by this publisher. I really like the mechanism that it's done here and here and here. I've had a chance to play it and I'm really interested in reviewing it. So you've established that your interest in this game is you've invested a bit of time in it. And publishers are really listening for that. They want to know that your interest in a game is not just, hey, I want to grab a free copy. They're listening for types of language that suggest you've done some work or research before getting here. So if you want to earn the privilege of gaining review games, then you need to go into the convention with the mind and the attitude of a reviewer, namely, how am I going to turn this game into content? What is my approach? What is my angle? What am I doing with this item? Not just, hooray, I get access to a free game. Because whatever, if you if that's your approach, I can almost guarantee that the type of content you're producing is not going to be very stimulating for your audience. What are you doing with the content? How are you pitching it to your audience? How are you going to comment upon it in an interesting fashion? It's not often that I talk about Queen Games, and I'm glad to say that this year at Origins, Queen Games offered a game that offered me a very interesting experience. The easiest way for me to describe it is Ticket to Tetris. By that, I mean the mechanisms offer you a very strong ticket to ride experience, but the abstract puzzle is very much a Tetris-like game. On your turn, you can either collect two adjacent colored cards or spend a set of cards to claim a shape of equal size. You then try to fit that shape onto your tableau such that there is no empty space beneath it. It must be supported. You gain points for scoring complete rows for complete columns, and you increase the magnitude of those points where those rows and columns are completely filled with windows on the squares. Along the way, there are certain markers that indicate when you've gained a particular bonus. Certain rows, when they're complete, will offer you this bonus, and there are certain squares in your grid, when covered, will give you these particular bonuses. You can use this bonus either to gain a 
single shot power that you can potentially replenish, a single square that you can use to plug in any gap or to refresh all of your powers that you have usually spent. You keep playing until the deck depletes a second time or rather after the first completion, you insert the card into the bottom 10 cards or so and shuffle those on top. So you know the end is roughly within the last 10 cards. And at that point, whoever has the most points wins. So it has that same straightforward element as Ticket to Ride. Certainly with a deluxe edition, the acrylic tiles are superb. They have clear perspex windows in the middle of them. The tiles are wonderful to the sense of touch. And the flow of the game plays really nice. I think the four player mode is a little bit much. I think you get the best engagement with the game at the two player mode. Realistically, we are talking multiplayer solitaire games. Each player is doing their own thing, but drawing from the same central pool. It has what I call that Carcassonne entropy. So the number of things that you get to engage with are finite, and that doesn't scale based on player count, which means the fewer players, the more points of engagement you have with the game, and the more players, the fewer points of engagement you have with the game. So naturally, this means you are going to have the most amount of engagement with the game at that two-player count. But it's even more exacerbated when you're talking about Copenhagen as opposed to Carcassonne, because at least with Carcassonne, you have a common map that you're working upon. In Copenhagen, you are literally working on your own board individually and maybe drawing from common piles. So there are a few things that are relevant to the number of players, but by and large, the experience of the game is not going to dramatically change based on that number. So my takeaway is if you like that sort of very medium light to casual Euro style gameplay, this is a really good game for you. And I had a lot of fun with it. I would definitely recommend it as a two-player game more than a multiplayer game, but that's simply because I think that's where you get your most interesting engagement with the game. One of the most anticipated games of Origins was the third installment in the Century Trilogy, Century A New World, where the first installment takes place in the Mediterranean, the second installment takes place in a nondescript Asian country. The third installment takes place in pre-colonial North America and represents the process of early colonization. Still, it is one of the most highly anticipated games of the convention, largely because it completes a trilogy that took three years to develop and build and publish. So what are my impressions of A New World? In this episode, let's say, Emerson Masucci has taken a dip into worker placement. In terms of gameplay, you are attempting to acquire, trade and improve Spice, much like you do in the series, to meet the fulfillment of various goals. So what does it do differently? Well, it is a worker placement game. You have four sections of area. Some will be progressively uncovered as you play through the game and you will take turns allocating workers to various spaces to gain spice, to upgrade spice, to etc, etc, etc. The typical flow for these games. But it is not entirely a mutually exclusive experience because you can take over an area that is already occupied by another player's meeples. You merely have to add an extra meeple on top and those meeples get returned to the original player. 
This is important because unless you use a whole action as downtime, you don't naturally recover your meeples. So you are either placing meeples or using your action to recover all meeples on the board. We have seen a similar dynamic as this in Manhattan Project and its successors. Additionally, a new world gives you benefits for completing contracts. If you are, there are four types of contracts and each of them will be a continuous or specific benefit. Some of them will give you a discount of required workers to activate a particular workspace. Some of them will give you extra resources when you activate particular areas indicated by specific icons. And you keep doing this and doing this and doing this until one of you has at least eight of these contracts fulfilled and the game will continue out. So how does A New World compare to the rest of the trilogy? It requires a lot more lateral thinking than either Spice Road or Eastern Wonders. With Eastern Wonders being a pick up and deliver game, you had a very specific sense of orientation in the way that you play, no pun intended. With A New World, you are looking at how to expand an engine build through this worker placement game. And like most typical worker placement games, you seem to hit that peak just as the engine gets going. And it's interesting, while I had a lot of fun with this game, I am finding myself hard pressed to describe, I'm finding myself hard pressed to describe any specifically unique mechanisms of the game. I'd have to be honest and say a big part of my enjoyment of the game is the framing of it being the final part of a trilogy. I definitely think had it been released as entirely a standalone object, it would be unremarkable. But the real excitement of this game, and probably why it is a little bit generic, is its ability to combine with the other two and also as a large triplication. So I guess the litmus test for this game will be to get it back home and try what I call Spice World. Conspiracy the Solomon Gambit is a game brought back to us by Restoration Games. It was originally published in 1973 by Dr. Solomon, and now the designer features as a significant character in the game. Conspiracy is a game of tug of war, where there is a briefcase that stands in the center and your task is to marshal it back to your headquarters. There are six spies on the main board, and at any one time you may attempt to direct the efforts of one of those spies to marshal that briefcase back to your headquarters. Each individual spy has a unique ability that can influence the standing or placement of other spies or in fact this suitcase itself. But a key part of the game is about the bidding and bluffing and control of the spies. You don't control any spy individually. However, you may use one of your actions to in fact invest upon these spies. Over the course of the game, the amount of money that you put down builds up on individual spies based on your choices. And should someone reject your move, they can challenge you. In this challenge, it's a back and forth. The challenger and the challengee will go back and forth, either indicating an amount of money that they've put down as a bid on that character or outbidding the previous indication. You can stop at an amount lower than what you actually have on that agent, but you may not go over. And you may decide to concede a gambit earlier in the game to hide the true amount of money you have invested in a character. And the reason you might do this is if it's very clear that the vast majority of your money is invested in one of those particular characters, 
the opponent might decide to eliminate them from the board entirely. So the game has a very strong cat and mouse feel. You have an ebb and flow of the movement of this case, but as the game accelerates and more money is put down, you get these really high jeopardy stakes of who gets to move a particular character. So it has this element of known chess-like manipulation where you can 100% see in the abstract the pieces on the board and how they can push and pull the key briefcase. But then you get this brinksmanship element of people secretly doubling down on particular agents and you not knowing which of them are their stronger players. It creates this really interesting frisson between the known and the unknown that creates wonderful dynamics. And the core joy of this game is the moments where you concede a lesser victory only to come out in full force and seal a greater victory by showing how much control you have over key agents. It is a game of deceit and misdirection and I think it plays absolutely wonderfully and I'm glad Restoration Games has brought it back to the fore. Once again, thank you everyone for tuning in to Story Mode. Now that I'm back settled into Australia, the scheduling for various things should assume a little bit more of a normal pace, especially as I am trying to organize more of my life into place. I will have more information about origin highlights as we go forth, but until then, good night.